You could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. So to start this parable, um, I want you to imagine that you're like a little kid again. Or remember your little kids, because I know they were, they were all precious and everything else. So imagine your uh, kids you had, or when you were a kid, uh, after they were toddlers, but before they became teenagers. Sometimes, at, at, you know, at a few points in, those, in that narrow time frame, there's like a special joy that, that a kid has at that age that comes from doing uh, what your parents want you to do. And there's this narrow range where the kids are happy. They, they enjoy doing things to make their parents happy and they take delight in joy because they feel loved, they feel special because they made their parents happy. And um, you take delight in your, your mom or dad or whoever's uh, you're acting as your parent being being happy with you, but sometimes that that precious narrow range fades away, and obedience becomes you know, grudging or half-hearted or maybe not existent or maybe just sort of yeah okay I'll I'll go ahead and do it. Some people's teenagers might be like that. Um, you know there's there's less joy in obedience. There's less pleasure being a good kid. We start thinking more about ourselves and what we want and not really care so much about doing things that would just make our parents happy. Uh, doing things and being obedient so our parents will be happy. That becomes less important to us. And our relationship with Jesus can be the same in different seasons of our lives. That first joy when you first become a Christian, when you purge things out of your life or you're excited and you want to fix things and you're just filled with this rush of joy of wanting to do what God says in his word and the Holy Spirit speaking to you, working on your heart, and you are filled with joy at just obeying what God wants us to do. Um, but sometimes in different seasons of life, that joy fades away into maybe going more on autopilot than real fervent love, um, lukewarmness. Things can become kind of perfunctory, not because you're a terrible person, but just because um, stuff happens and life happens and you just sort of lose that, uh, like the song goes, you lose that loving feeling. Uh, and you become, you can become afflicted with the same kind of lukewarmness that Jesus criticized the congregation at Laodicea for having in Revelation 3.14 and following. And so as we wait for, the, wait for Jesus to come back, all of these things that we know about loving Jesus and following him, we know them, but they can become abstract, academic, not very, not very present, right? They're real, but they're not real. They're just way out there as a far off thing like the idea of the Mariners winning the World Series. Yeah, it's possible, not gonna happen though. You know, it's just, and we become sort of cold because we have real, quote, real things that we have to, we have to deal with uh, in life. This parable is one of four that Jesus told to warn us about this exact problem. He told all of these parables after Matthew 24. Matthew 24, this long passage where Jesus charts the, the course of world history all the way up to the Antichrist um, bringing um, desolation on the world and then him coming back. And then he tells four parables in a row right after Matthew 24, 2440-ish, uh, when he stops that, he tells four parables in a row. And they're all about 
essentially saying, seeing is how I'm going to come back one day. You don't know when it'll be, but it's going to be a while, but I am going to come back. Uh, live as though you actually believe that. Don't become cold. Don't become stale. Don't become like the soda you left on the counter last night that's flat now. Uh, live like you actually expect me to come back because you don't know when I'm coming back. Four parables all getting across that point. And that's what I want to talk about. That's what Jesus is going to talk about today. So we'll be in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. We're just going to breeze through the text pretty quick. Then we're going to circle back and identify who the characters are and what we're supposed to understand from them in this story. And then we'll close with, what should we do with this? What are you supposed to do with this, this parable? What should Lucas do with Aries? That's another question right now. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into the, uh, into the passage. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Uh, help us to love you more. Help us to want to know you more. And um, convect our hearts where necessary, uh, wherever the shoe happens to fit. And lead us to uh, be watchful and loving and obedient children for you while we wait for you to return whenever that day is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we go. Um, the parable jumps in right after he finishes this long discussion of the course of world history culminating in him coming back and setting things right. And so now he says um, in chapter 25, verse 1, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten uh, virgins or young ladies, or your translation might have bridesmaids. The focus isn't on that they're virgins. The focus is that they're, they're young ladies in teenage years um, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So he's going to give a, an example of something happening suddenly that you need to be ready for. Because if you miss it, then sucks to be you. So he's giving four examples with the same sort of thing going on. This is what the kingdom of heaven uh, will be like. Um, it's hard to sort of reconstruct exactly the situation here, but this seems to be the situation for the story. There's a bunch of bridesmaids, and they're waiting for it to join a wedding procession as they go from the, what's probably the bride's house to the bridegroom's house. So there's a, this big procession going through the street of a small village, and these bridesmaids are waiting, and when they see the procession coming, they're supposed to join, this is at night, they're supposed to join in this celebration with uh, each holding a lamp or a torch that's lit as part of this nice procession. Uh, you might say, well, why don't they just meet them at the house? That would be simpler. Who knows? I don't know. Plans are weird sometimes. They're going to meet them on the way. And I think Jesus told it this way to make a point for us. But at any rate, um, they're waiting. They're waiting. They're looking down the road saying, you see him? Did you see him coming? Don't see him coming. So they're, they're sitting there. They're waiting to come. And they can't text to find out what the ETA is. So they're sitting there waiting, just like we used to do in the olden days. I remember when I asked my dad when I was a kid, did they have cars in the olden days? And he said, wasn't that long ago, Tyler? olden days. But anyway, back in the olden days, there was no texting, so they're just waiting to see what on earth is going on. Um, so here they are. You got a bunch of folks, and they're waiting. Sort of connect the dots in your mind. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The numbers don't mean anything, just saying there's a group that's ready, there's a group that's not ready. The foolish ones 
took their lamps, but didn't take any oil with them, right? There's no electricity, there's no battery. Um, you need uh, oil to light the lamp. Five of them um, took the oil, five of them didn't. Uh, the wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So you had one group that just took the lamp with no extra oil. So if, they, if it takes too long for them to get here, their torches are nothing. They can't light them anymore. But the wise ones took some other oil with them. They took their charger with them. Good thinking, good thinking. Um, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. Oops, battery's about to die. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. There's nothing sinister about the falling asleep. It doesn't mean if you sleep, you're a bad Christian, or don't try and connect too many dots. Just get the point, the general point with the parable. Parables always go wrong when we try and connect too many dots. Um, they're waiting, and they're just, they fall asleep, and who knows when they're going to show up. But when he does, they'll, they'll be there. And then, at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out, come out to meet him. There it is, it's time. They all scramble to their feet, get their lamps ready. Verse 7, the, Then all the virgins woke up, or the young ladies woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. So the smart ones get up, their lamps are out or almost out. They fix up their lamps so they have more oil, so the torch will burn bright and everything's good. The other folks are like, I got 2% battery. Can I borrow your charger? Um, we got a problem here. How can I take the pictures? Um, you know, I need, give me your charger. I need more oil. Give me your oil. Can you lend me some, basically? Verse 9. Uh, no, they replied. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But, verse 10, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. They, they were gone too long. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. The door was shut. The others went off to buy, buy a charger, to buy more oil, and uh, they thought they could be back in time as they saw, they saw him, either they saw him coming, you know, the procession coming from way away, or someone sort of ran up and said, he'll be here in X number of minutes, get ready. And uh, they just, they took too long to get back. So the ones who were ready, they joined the procession with their torches, and they all went in uh, to the wedding banquet to celebrate, and doors were shut, and the others show up, and they're like, I didn't make it, I'm late. And they knock on the door, let me, uh, let me come in. Verse 11, later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, and that's the end of the parable. This is Jesus saying, what's the point? Jesus says, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You do not know the day or the hour. So let's circle back to this parable. Remember when he, he tells a parable at a specific time for a specific reason. He's just given this long thing about um, how things are going to get worse and worse and worse, but then I'm going to come back 
and I'm going to set things right. At the end of Matthew, toward the end of Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 29, and 31, but I'm going to come back. The people who, don't, who aren't looking forward to me coming back, they're going to be upset, they're going to be sad, but everyone else will rejoice, and I'll be back, and things will be the way they are. And so now he tells this parable for a reason. But the story, to make a point. So we have to identify who the characters are. Who is the bridegroom? It's Jesus. The bridegroom is Jesus who's coming to a wedding. Who are the young ladies who are prepared? What do we have? We have Christians. Anyone else have any ideas? Christians, believers? Yeah, Christians, believers. Who are the people who are, who are waiting for the bridegroom to show up and who are prepared for him to show up? It's the believers. And I want you to, the more you know about Scripture, the more dots should connect in your head. You have a bridegroom plus a bunch of people who are prepared to meet him so they can go to the wedding banquet, which basically shows us um, Christ's people meeting him as he's on his way to the wedding feast, so to speak, in this, in this imagery. So here's a question that you can think of. Um, where else in Scripture does God use this husband and wife analogy to talk about himself and his relationship with his people? What other places have you seen this before where God talks about himself and his people as a, as a, his people as a, a woman or a wife and himself as a husband or a suitor or something, something like that? Where have you guys seen that before? Okay, Revelation 19, the, everything's ready for the, for the wedding supper. And you see Jesus on the horse getting ready to come back to um, inaugurate the wedding feast. Aha, it's almost like there's a connection or something. What about Hosea 1 through 3, where poor Hosea is told to marry a woman of ill repute who breaks his heart and runs away from him all the time, cheats on him a hundred times, and then uh, God says, um, I'm you, Hosea, and the woman who just keeps cheating on you and running away and having children out of wedlock, that is you guys. And I am, even though you're doing that to me, I'm going to go out and I'm going to not kidnap you and drag you back, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to win your heart back and bring you back home to where you belong. So all that silliness can stop and we can have the relationship we were supposed to have. And that is all just a metaphor, an analogy for God. Hosea's troubles with this poor woman, with this woman of ill repute, is a metaphor for God in his, his, um, his quest to win his people back. We're the unfaithful wife. Ephesians 5, 25 where Paul talks about how um, the relationship between a husband and wife, the loving, mutual submission between a husband and wife is the same thing as between Christ and his church, Christ and his people. So this analogy of, um, of um, the wedding and Christ and his people in different flavors is a big part of Scripture to get across the, the love, the care, and the joy that will come when we're united with our Savior again.
Now, having said that, I suppose that was a spoiler alert, but this is pretty obvious anyway. Um, what, what is the bridegroom's arrival for the wedding? What is that talking about? He finally comes around the corner. There he is. It's time for the wedding feast. What is that in the Bible story? What's that? Yeah, when Christ comes back. If you've seen in, um, um, in fact, yes, I have it on the next slide. Um, in Matthew 24, 31, which he just finished talking about, he talks about how he comes back and he'll send his angels as he's coming back. He'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And they'll all meet him, sort of, sort of meet him as he's coming back, and they'll all enter in together. The parable of the wheat in the, in the weeds, of the wheat and the tares, if you're familiar with the King James phrasing, um, talks about the same thing at the end of that in uh, Matthew 13, verses 40 to 43. But there's this imagery in Scripture of this cosmic global meeting where Jesus finally comes back and his people... His people are gathered by the angels to meet him, sort of halfway as it were, and then they all come back together. They all come back together. And Revelation 19, like Judy said, is that being fulfilled in the future. And you notice what, trigger, what signals this coming is this loud trumpet blast. And so I don't think it's quite an accident that when Jesus told the parable, um, he said that, you know, they're waiting and they don't know when he's going to get there and they fall asleep. And then at midnight, a cry just rings out and sort of blasts everyone asleep. Here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. I think that's sort of um, implicitly pointing to this loud trumpet blast that's going to ring across the earth that, that signals that the angels have come and they're gathering God's people, alive, dead, or whatever, to meet him as they come and sort of escort him in or follow Jesus in as he comes back. So who are the young ladies who did not prepare? This is the, this is the point of the parable. It's these people, right? Um, don't be like these people. That's what Jesus is saying. Who are these people? Who are these people? This is the question. What we know is that these people have not made preparations for the wedding banquet. They're, they say they want to be there, but they've made no preparations to actually make sure that they're there. They're not serious about their responsibility. They can't just sort of sidle along with the, with the, the, the procession on someone else's coattails. You have to have a torch to be part of the procession and be part of the thing. And you have to be ready and you have to go with them or else... You know, you're late and too bad. Um, your relationship with God is your own personal responsibility. You can't just borrow oil from somebody else. Uh, you have to be ready yourself. If you say you're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, you have to be ready yourself. And no one else can become ready for you. The person sitting next your spouse cannot make you a Christian or make you be a faithful Christian. You have to do it yourself. Um, and this is a true story. At my older sister's wedding, um, 
I think 10, I think it was 10 years ago. Anyway, a while ago, my older sister's wedding, I had to be the emergency best man for my now brother-in-law because his best man forgot about the wedding. I mean, he forgot. I'm not even, I didn't make this up for this, uh, this passage, for this sermon. He forgot. Like, so the day of, or maybe the day before, I think it was the day of, uh, the day of, I get a frantic call from my sister saying, you know, I don't know what the guy's name is. Um, you know, he forgot and uh, I need you to, he's out of town and you need to come down here and get fitted for a tuxedo rental and everything. And I'm like, okay, I get, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And I remember I asked my brother-in-law, uh, future brother-in-law, I said, what kind of friend is this? And he said, not a friend anymore. Um, and, uh, and that occurred to me as I thought about this passage. What kind of friend is it who forgets your, his best, alleged best friend's own wedding? Not much of a friend. It was, he went on vacation. You know, oops, sorry, bro, I'm not going to be there. Well, that's kind of a big deal, you know. Obviously, he's not that important to you. Um, these young ladies are the parallel of my brother-in-law's um, ex-friend, right? Uh, obviously, it's not that important to you, or you'd be prepared to, to meet him. Be prepared to meet him. And now he's not going into all this stuff about the depth of preparation. He's just saying there are people who are ready for the bridegroom to arrive and they, so they can join the procession. And there are other people who are caught unawares, who are not prepared, who've done nothing to prepare, and they miss the entire thing because they're scrambling around trying to get themselves ready. And they miss the entire procession. They're not ready. They don't care. Just like my brother-in-law's ex, um, ex-alleged friend. Um... Oops, I was supposed to. Oh, I am not wrong. Um, real friends of Jesus are living and waiting like they actually want him to come back. So remember that. Uh, real friends of Jesus are living and waiting like they actually want him to come back. Fake friends want him to come back like most of us want to go on a diet. Yeah, it's a good idea. I acknowledge it's a good idea. Probably not going to happen. Like, I'll get right on that after this, after this, after this, after this. So there's a difference in how true friends act toward Jesus. A big difference. And Jesus isn't identifying anyone. He tells the story and then lets the shoe fit. I don't know if the shoe fits in your life. But the Holy Spirit knows, and if you're a Christian, uh, he will let you know if the shoe fits or not. That's what Jesus is saying. He's poking at us to see what are we going to do about that. What should you, what should we, what should we do with this? And this is where it becomes really specific. Because you could just end this thing and I could say, um, I could just read verse 13 and I can just say, you know, um, keep watch and be ready for Jesus. Hallelujah. And then we could just leave. But what does that even mean? What does it, what does it mean? You know, uh, I could try and go a step further and I can say, so be faithful. What does that mean? Doesn't mean anything. I could give you a list of things you shouldn't do. Don't be an externalist. Don't be lukewarm. Start loving God more which is about as helpful as someone saying, calm down. Okay, well, thanks for the hot tip. I mean, uh, love God more. Y'all, I'll try. Um, so instead of talking about the things um, that you shouldn't do, 
Um, I think the best thing to do to make sure, how do I, how can I be sure that I am prepared in living like I actually want, like I actually want Jesus to come back? Uh, I'll give you an example that we do often at work. Um, I run an investigations team for a, a Washington State agency for the insurance commissioner's office. And we have a whole bunch of companies that sell fake insurance plans. And they have a whole bunch of people who sell the plans. So when we come across this situation, we can do two things. We can go after the 300 people that are selling plans to people, or we could just go after the company and take the company out, and then the people won't have anything to sell anymore. Which is the easiest one to do? Which has the most fruit? Take the company out, and the people will just sort of scatter like cockroaches, and they'll find something else to sell. And we'll see them later, uh, the next time. But take out the company, and you solve the bigger problem. So rather than fashion a checklist of things to do to make sure that you're, that you're ready and things you shouldn't do so you, uh, so you aren't, aren't ready, um, what we should do is focus on the root things that determine the, how good your relationship with God is. And if you address that, then the rest of the stuff will start naturally falling into place. So what should you do? What are the foundational things that you and I, that we should do to make sure we're living like we actually want Jesus to come back? And I felt bad because there's nothing revolutionary about these two things I'm going to say, but um, they're the most fundamental, basic things that you as a Christian can do to make sure you're living like you actually want Jesus to come back and you're living and thinking in light of it. So two things. And uh, I have some advice to offer on each one that hopefully will help you. The first one is to read your Bible regularly. Do you have a Bible reading schedule that you use? Maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years and you have your system and everything's fine. And that's good. Um, that's fine. Uh, but maybe you don't and you don't have a systematic thing that helps you go through the Bible. Find a Bible reading plan. Find a Bible reading plan and start using it. I emailed out a Bible reading plan that I've been using this year. I use a different one each year. Um, I emailed it out this morning. It's the five-day Bible reading plan where you commit to reading five days a week. Um, so you don't have to read every day, but read five days a week, and it takes you through um, the Bible throughout the whole year. Um, I like it. It's good. It ties the Psalms to the events in First and Second Kings and stuff and pairs them, and it's, it's very nice. Um, find a Bible reading plan and use it. If you've never used one, you need to read your Bible regularly. Find a Bible reading plan. I'll print copies of the one I emailed, and I'll have them for you next week, um, or Dave will have them for you next week. Um, use a Bible reading plan. Um, how long has it been since you've switched Bible translations? If you say, well, the Bible's boring. Maybe you'd never say that because you know it's wrong to say it, but maybe you think it. Um, how long has it been since you've switched translations just for fun, just to try it out? Switch your translation if your reading is stale or there's so many notes in your Bible that you can't really read the text anymore. Switch your Bible translation just for fun to try it. Try it for two days. If you want to know what you should switch to, ask me and I'll give, you, I'll give you a good recommendation on something that's the opposite translation philosophy of what you're using now. And I think you'll, it'll be like a jolt of fresh air 
to try to read a different Bible translation. Starla laughs at me because she says I switch translations every two years. Um, well, it doesn't matter. Um, switch your Bible translation, and this is why. Um, the Bible is not a magical book. I talked about this in theology class on Thursday. So I'm not saying read your Bible because it has magical properties. I'm saying read your Bible because the scriptures are the divine, the main divine channel the Holy Spirit uses to impact your life and to speak to you. Word and spirit go together. For some reason, I thought that, that, that old lame Frank Sinatra song, Love and Marriage, that go together like the horse and carriage. Well, word and spirit are meant to go together. It's not like you read your Bible and the words are, have magic effect on you. That's the Holy Spirit applying the words, applying God's message to your heart. Even beyond what the text even says, you read about David saying, uh, Lord, search my heart, and if there's any wicked way in me, let me know. And then the Holy Spirit brings to mind this and that and that and this, or things you need to apologize for, or uh, th there's a, not a trampoline effect, but there is a, um, there is a supernatural um, communication that happens between God and his people when they read the scripture, with the, uh, read the scripture, and the Spirit speaks to us, moves us, convicts us, convinces us, um, speaks to us through the Word. There is this synergy here. You read the Word with the Spirit, it changes you. Then you read the Word with the Spirit, and it changes you. And it's this cycle that I'm trying to depict on the screen. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be complete, equipped for every good work. But the scripture doesn't work on its own. In Ephesians 6, 17, at the end of that long section about the armor of God and the helmet, the breastplate, the sandals, the belt, uh, the shield, uh, there's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The, the word of God is the sword, as it were, the spirit uses to defend you against Satan and to fight against, offensively, Satan. Word and spirit together. When you read the scriptures regularly in a systematic way to hear see the mistakes of God's brothers and sisters from years past, to read the Psalms, to read the Word, and hear God's message of the Gospel promised and then delivered, and the Spirit speaks to you and moves you and convicts you and shapes you, that is the sword the Spirit uses, uses the Word. Don't just read your Bible because it's magical. Read it because that is the supreme channel the Holy Spirit uses to speak to his people through the word. Read the scriptures regularly. But how many of us do in some systematic way? The second thing is to pray regularly, which again is not much of a spoiler alert, but it's one of those things that we know, but yeah, not always the best at doing. Ephesians 6.18, just after that list of the armor of God, the sword, the shield, the helmet, the breastplate, the sandals, 
and all of that, he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The prayer is meant to complement the guy with the armor. The guy with the armor is useless without prayer. Think of the Spirit as like the logistics line that supplies the soldier. His armor will rust and everything will fall apart. He'll have no food. He'll have no, no polished stuff so his armor doesn't rust. Uh, I mean, the, the guy, the soldier, isn't meant to be alone. Pray. You have all this cool stuff on. You have your offensive weapon. You have your sword. Uh, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. If we do not pray, we're like a flower that's been cut when I was a kid, I would take flowers. Sometimes I stole my neighbor's flowers. I didn't realize it was a bad idea. And I'd take it to my mom, and she'd put it in a little glass on the counter, then the flower would die. Then I'd go to steal more flowers from the neighbor. Uh, but because the flower is not connected to anything anymore, it sort of withers. Or it's like that orange you found in, the, in your backpack from work that fell out of your lunch bag, and it's like three weeks old. It's like pruny and shriveled, right? Uh, that is what we become when we do not pray to God in the Spirit. Read your Bible, convicted, moved, convinced by the Spirit. Then we pray and ask God to help us, ask God to speak to us, ask God to, to convict us, ask God to change us, ask God to help us. And it's this eternal cycle that goes and goes and goes. How many of you have tried to pray through the Psalms like Donald Whitney recommended from the book I handed out? I've handed out twice now, Praying the Bible. There's two copies on the table back there that someone can still take, and I'll buy more if you want one. How many of you have just tried? In fact, I, 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 dare, I double dog dare you to pray through a song. Um, the system he has set up is whatever day it is, pray that song. And if you don't like that song because it doesn't work for you, then add 30 and pray that. It's the 18th. Psalm 18 is really long, and it has some, a bunch of stuff in it. So if you read Psalm 18, and you're like, I don't think it's going to do it for me today, add 30 and do Psalm 48. Or add 30 and do Psalm 78. You just keep adding 30 till you can find a psalm that you can pray through. Uh, I, I double-dog dare you to pray through a psalm. Take one verse, read it, pause, and pray whatever comes to your mind from that verse in your life that are, that's going on, and then do the next verse through the psalm. And then I challenge you to see if at the end of it, time it, at the end of it, see if you haven't prayed longer for more subjects in a deeper way than you have prayed in a long time. Try it and then see if that is not the case. And if it is the case, then why don't you incorporate that as part of your prayer? Unless you're a Christian, one of the probably rarer Christians, who has an outstanding prayer life and everything is great. But if you're not one of those people, why don't you try doing this? Matthew 25, 13 says, Keep watch, therefore, in light of everything I've just said, Jesus warns, keep watch, you do not, because you do not know the day or the hour. We need to live and wait like we actually want Jesus to come back. 
Live prepared to meet him. And that can mean a million different things about our life and your circumstance. But what it does mean is that if you're reading your Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, and you are praying to God on a regular basis, not just for your Aunt Helen's toe or for important health needs, but you're praying and thanking God for who he is. You're confessing your sins, which you'll be forced to do if you pray through the Psalms because it's not just about prayer requests. You're forced to pray for things that we don't naturally write down on a list. If you're doing those things, then from that nucleus will flow all of the different issues of life that will make you ready or more prepared, better prepared to meet Jesus when he comes back. If we want to be ready to meet him, we need to live a life that says we actually want to meet him. Not a life where he's on autopilot on the dashboard like a bobblehead while we're really about other stuff. Because what this parable tells us is there are some people who say they're waiting for him, but they're not going to be there. Because despite what they say, their life shows it ain't that important. That's what Jesus is saying and warning about. And I don't know if that applies to any of us here, but the Holy Spirit does, and you do. And that's what Jesus wants us to be left with, to think about as we go off on this Sunday afternoon. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to love you more. Help us to want to be sons and daughters who will make you smile, who will make you proud. And uh, convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment according to your will. And help us to be better and more loving children for you. Better this week than we were last week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.